From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. Coming to you via Zoom. Got the whole crew. Audie Weiner's here. Shane Jensen's here. Eric Bradlow is here. And this is Cade Massey. We have begun our show for the last two years with a segment on COVID. We're going to do that again today. One difference, every now and then we bring in someone who actually knows something about COVID. We're a bunch of uh, statisticians and statistician wannabes who read papers and try to make sense of it with each other. Every now and then we talk to someone who knows quite a bit more than us, and this is going to be one of those weeks. Dr. Joanna Mazel is joining us. She is a professor at the University of Arizona. She's a theoretical biologist. She advises people like us, data scientists. She's been published in Evolution, Biochemistry, Infectious Disease, and she has found herself, as many many data scientists and academics have over the last two years, deep into COVID, deeper than she ever thought she would be into infectious disease. And we are delighted to have you on the show this week, Dr. Mazel. Thank you and welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, one of the reasons you came to our attention is because of this Twitter thread that blew up. We've had various conversations over the last two years about, um, obviously, uh, public policy, government policy, some of the organizations involved. Um, CDC has come up and we've had some guests who've had some trouble. But your, your Twitter thread related a story that kind of took it to new heights. So, um, we're, we want to talk with you more broadly about COVID, but let's start with this because you got something like a million hits on this little story. What happened with you and the CDC? So I think the real story is how banal it all is. Like people think that what's going wrong with the CDC must be political interference. And then if you change that, it's all going to be better. Um, that some top down something, but a lot of it is just a dysfunctional agency you know a bureaucracy you know bureaucracies vary and some there we all hate them but some of them have more problems than others so I wrote what should have been a pretty boring Twitter thread about uh you know all of the obstacles of publishing something about manuscript clearance processes and data policies (laughs) and so on but the fact is that you know, something that sounds banal, like, oh, but in the discussion section, it only must be all the interpretation and not in the results. Well, our paper's about a metric. And if you're going to say what the metric is, well, there's some interpretation in that. So it ha- if you leave it out, it's incomprehensible. And if you put it, if you wait, you know, if you, and if you put it early, you're in breach of the data policy. And if 20 people at the CDC have to sign off on everything, it takes forever. And then the upshot of the story was in the end, they rejected our paper because they'd been looking at it for so long that the data was more than 12 months old. And then it was no longer in alignment with their policies on data recency. So I think that kind of encapsulates what's wrong and what's holding the CDC up, which is so banal. It's remarkable. So just to be clear, they have a policy of they're they're only going to publish data that have that are within the last 12 months, but then they have all these other style guidelines. They're not substantive guidelines, they're style guidelines. And your trouble navigating that and the various rules they impose on you took so long that all of a sudden your data were no longer within their guidelines. That is extraordinary. So update me on why were you trying to publish there anyway? There are lots of places you could publish. What was going on? What is it about the CDC publication outlet that you were trying to take advantage of? 
the CDC urged us to publish there. I mean, they urged us first to publish in their internal thing, but then that got turned down because they said they were too backlogged. And then there was a special issue. We were publishing on the use of, of technology for contact tracing, and they had a special issue there. It was actually the CDC who reached out to us and specifically urged us to publish in that particular publication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and by the way, we got through peer review just fine. <laughs> so, so Joanna, it just seems to me that that the CDC has how reputation has been extremely damaged by the last two years of or so of COVID. What you're talking about is a, a piece of the action that, that most people don't even know about. But from our set where we sit, there's a few things that have really just bothered me. Obviously, one of them is the publication of studies, which is really badly designed. And I'm looking at this and going, I'm amazed that they're using this to try to build policy because the study's terrible. But other things, and this is what- But, Adi, but it was stylized really appropriately, yeah, yeah. concisely. Yeah, exactly. You know, just bad studies. But, but that's one of the things we had a long running conversation almost weekly for about, uh, about two months was when was the CDC going to have more vaccinated 65-year-olds than there were 65-year-olds? Because that number just kept getting higher and higher. And we were debating it and we were essentially saying it's garbage. It can't be. And there were actually surveys that were done that were suggesting that the number was about 85%. Meanwhile, CDC's we're presenting it as 99.7. And I know about selection bias in surveys, but to get that kind of difference, you're looking at, you have to have a, a hundred times bias that didn't make any sense. And they eventually retracted it. I don't think they've still retracted it down to where it really is. And then we sell all, all kinds of other oddities. And I'm not even talking about the policy flip-flop that, that, that you typically, typically see in the paper. I'm talking about the basic data quality stuff that comes out of the CDC. And it's just been unfathomable to us. I think, I think the solution, I mean, there's two issues. There's the quality of the underlying data, but really the best solution is transparency. So if the CDC made transparent, de-identified, aggregated, as safe as possible, but also as comprehensive as possible, line list data wherever possible, if they made freely available the maximum amount of data they, they could, then every single statistician, including all of you guys, could Did jump you? right on it, analyze it, subject it to peer review, you know, to, to not, not the formal peer review process, but actually discuss it in real time and make progress. The more eyes that are on the data, the better. And that was the second part of my Twitter thread was another study where the CDC had gone to great lengths to collect data from NCAA schools and had done one study on it, which didn't go nearly far enough, didn't use advanced enough statistical techniques to answer key questions that are still coming up now about what's the best day for testing. And we said, okay, could we, 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 we know how to do this statistics. Can we do it? And they said, they took a couple of months. And then they said, uh, no, because we, the schools all signed a really narrow data use agreement with us. So we can't share the de-identified data. And it's like, well, why did you ask the schools to sign a, a narrow data use agreement? This is a pandemic and you're the CDC. Why didn't you give them a data use agreement that says as long as we keep everything, you know, de-identified and private regarding the individual athletes, that we can put the full data up on the website tomorrow so that as many eyes as possible could start analyzing it. Mm -hmm. And this is a this is a difference in attitude um, and the way forward. 
especially since COVID's evolving so fast and that the data goes out of date. The data on Delta might be wrong for data on Omicron and we need new data, we need it in real time. And if they have the clout to collect it, they should make it freely available to the entire scientific community. That doesn't seem to be their philosophical bent. Um, in fact, it seems quite the contrary. And, and you know, I, what I, I feel like the, the, we're doing a better job as a public processing data and discussing this than ever before, even beyond the academic community. And slowly, various pockets are taking advantage of that. But I, it would be a fantasy, I suppose, if a government actually did the, was that forward thinking. But Dr. Mazo, the way you talk about this, you say, well, this is so banal. I, I, clearly, yes. But when, you, when, when that's what you're seeing from them, it starts making sense why they've been so bad on the bigger decisions. I mean, it's all part of the same organization, part of the same cloth. It, it, should be, it shouldn't surprise us now when we hear that kind of thing. Yeah, so when, when they suddenly change and make a mess of things, it's because they should have changed already a year and a half ago and the bureaucracy is sclerotic and then the pressure for change becomes so great that they need to change within days and bypassing all of their systems. And so what we've seen in the last two weeks with respect to quarantine and isolation is almost daily. I mean, there's no proper change logs, but every time I go on the CDC page, I notice something small that's changed again from the last time I was there um, because they're doing it in real time. And it's like, well, that's, I actually think that's a great idea. And I think we should have been doing it in real time since the beginning of the pandemic If that kind of rapid modification had been the norm all of the time and they just accepted that we'd be used to that, then we wouldn't be in this situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so Dr. Mason, one of the things we talk about a lot on Wharton Moneyball is the, you know, we never have confidence intervals that are wide enough. We always put too much certainty on things. Could you tell our listeners what's one thing we all think we knew with somewhat certainty, but now we're sitting here 20, 22 months later and we're like, no, that wasn't right. And forget whether it's from the CDC, whether it was from data scientists, whether it was from peer reviewed uh, articles. What do you think has been the biggest thing where kind of the confidence interval has been too narrow and we just haven't taken into account whether it's other variants or the data source or just randomness? What would that be? So, uh, I mean, the infectious period has been a real issue in particular. So there was one study very early in 2020 and and the CDC and the WHO both used it to say the infectious interval is from day minus two before symptoms through to, and then they actually took it all the way to nine days after. Um, And that was always a little silly. Um, and it turns out that there was a bug in the code of that paper. Um, in fact, they accidentally deleted all the pairs uh, where people were infected further before symptom onset. And, uh, you know, really, you need to go back minus five days to get as far as plus nine days. Um, and But then it's not a binary. It's not that you're either infectious or you're not infectious. You know, it goes up and down. Uh, people with longer incubation periods have are infectious for more days before symptoms start. But then all the more 
uncertainties on top of that is how is each strain different? There's some evidence that Omicron is different. How does that depend on, on vaccination status of the person, whether they've been previously infected, all of the other things that infect that affect that. And, and, and this is sort of basic stuff for how long you should isolate, who should be contact traced to quarantine, how you should model the spread of disease, um, how important uh, contact tracing is in stemming pre-symptomatic versus just making sure that everyone stays home when they're sick, post-symptomatic. They're really important things. And I've been involved in work where we've put confidence interval for a particular data set, but the external validity of that on different variants and different, you know, changes it all, all over again all the time. It's a, re it's a really good point. So I have to say, I mean, it's, I mean, I want to almost piggyback on both these, the question and the answer, which is infectiousness. I think that has to do with, the, that is the, the thing that, is, that has troubled us from the beginning. You know, the, the clinical trial of the vaccine was really about infectiousness. And it showed that if you're vaccinated, you weren't going to get infected. Then Delta comes along and I'm like, well, let's just rip that up. Um, but at least we had this idea that if you were vaccinated, you were less likely to transmit. And then Omicron comes along and, well, time to rip that one up. And so we keep having these ideas about what should be happening. And none of them seem to work. Um, but one of the things that really kind of bugs me about the, the, the bureaucracy is that we as statisticians have, have been arguing for 100 years that the best way to learn things is with clinical trials, randomized controlled groups. And that was how the original vaccine, the vac both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were tested, all of them. But as soon as they got their approval, no more clinical trials. And so there are all these questions about whether we should be boosting, whether we should be, you know, about infectiousness. And there, as far as I can tell, there's no active method being portrayed anywhere, which should be driven by the CDC, to actually test these things. And I mean, I, we, I, honestly, we don't even need the randomized trial. What about just a longitudinal <laughs> observational study where we track study. people? Some are vaccinated, some aren't. I mean, we actually learn some answers to some of these questions. Yes, yeah, so I agree with both of you. I mean, clinical trials, I've, I mean, I wish that we had been set up. We should be doing clinical trials for all diseases all the time to an extent mm -hmm. that we're not. And with that failure already in place, we weren't about to change it for the pandemic. The UK, which were doing far more clinical trials with us, there we're all out. That's where most of the clinical trial data comes from. And that was kind of inevitable. Um, because they were already set up for it. But seriously, exactly, we can do longitudinal. Longitudinal is not that hard to institute. So the particular thing I've been most uh, involved in is uh, exposure notification, um, you know, which is a uh, something that was, was, the protocol was invented by a first year PhD student, James Petrie, that I work with, and then a few months later integrated into Google and Apple's uh, operating system. <laughs> Unfortunately, they uh, really made it worse in the process. And in particular, they took a policy that they were going to prevent the use of the system for scientific research. And that's such a shame because if Apple had chosen differently, we would have, we would have the longitudinal data that we need. Um, this, this was a solvable problem that Apple could have solved and we could have had it in real time. Dr. Mason, tell us more about this project and what exactly it is that and why you think it is that Apple made the decision. Also, why do you think it is that a first year PhD student is the one who came up with this innovation? 
Well, I'll start with the first one, Greg. James is just amazing. Uh, in December 2019, in the first year of his PhD at the University of Waterloo, he got very involved in the effective altruism movement and was reading up on that and decided to work on pandemic preparedness, which was just a great topic. And he already had some experience I, I, as a, a firmware engineer, so he was perfectly positioned to come up with protocols. Okay, hold on. He chose pandemic awareness in December. Preparedness in December 2019. By chance. Right. He wasn't paying attention to what was might be happening out of China. He just by chance chose that. Correct. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> Choice of topic. What does the what does the technology actually do? And what could it have done if Apple? Yeah, had- so so in March 2020, he published, you know, his version of the protocol. Um, and then in April or May, uh, Google and Apple came up with theirs. Um, so Basically, it uses Bluetooth on smartphones to see whether people are near each other. Extensions of it can place little beacons in rooms so you can tell if two people were in the same room. And in principle, you could have wearable devices for people who don't carry smartphones with them all the time, and you could update it to run on UWB to be more accurate than Bluetooth. Um, But basically... You know, a lot of the design, what James did really nicely was balance privacy and effectiveness. And so the question is, what what do you opt into and what do you opt out of? And so in his view, you know, you have, if, if Apple had decided to have this super private protocol, but make it opt out, then bang, it would be on everyone's phones. And then other parts can be opt in. Like when you get COVID, you can then opt in to sort of, I mean, there's some cryptography. You upload a key. So basically, it's like each phone is singing a song all the time. Um, and then there are keys to recognize which song snippet you heard. And if you have COVID, you upload the keys that tell you which songs it was, and then the phones can locally tell whether they heard it or not. It's public so, cryptography, so it's, uh, it's fundamental. Yeah, so, so, so basically nobody else knows that you were exposed. But, but Apple went way further in terms of the privacy. They were so concerned to preserve privacy that they forbade people from opting in to further use of the data. They forbade people from saying, you know, what song they'd heard that was responsible for the exposure that might have caused them to be infected. They forbade it from being linked with permission into manual contact traces databases. So so they made a system that was 100% opt-in and that created a, a, a quadratic problem. So you need to opt in to have it on your phone and then you need to opt in again to share your diagnosis. So not enough people end up using it. But they could have just turned it on in the background. It's so private that it's harmless. And then you only have to opt in to share the fact that you tested positive. And then it would have been incredibly powerful if you'd done it that way. And then you could allow people to give more data than that. You know, I mean, I'm not that concerned about the privacy of people who have COVID. I mean, that's the point of contact tracing is that, you know, it's an infectious disease and telling somebody where you were for the last, you know, few days is we consider that an acceptable thing during a pandemic. What we want to do is we don't want a mass surveillance state where everybody's location all the time is under surveillance, but a system that selectively allows surveillance only when you've opted in to say that you've had COVID, that's fine. Didn't Canada just announce that they had been secretly spying on their citizens with their, uh, with their phones? And now it's a big embarrassment. 
Oh yeah, so the, by the way, the things that are currently available of, the, of this of this exposure notification are literally the safest app of all the apps on your phone, but people are right. still scared of them. Um, but if they're going to be scared of them, you may as well make them a little bit more punch Better. to them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we get spied on in so many ways and it's not that I'm in favour of spying. I'm just saying there are ways to balance it and actually do some good and to preserve, I mean, it's about decentralised protocols yeah. where the data lives locally on people's phones until they choose to share it at just the right times. And the it's good things about that is it could give us all the longitudinal data we need to answer all the core questions that we need to ask about the epidemiological parameters of every new strain of COVID. Right, except, I mean, the actual kind of logistics of how that day, I mean... We, 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 do, we don't want a private company having all that data. And so instead, this would be collected and then given to what, the CDC to, 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 to manage? <laughs> so, um, so there's several ways of doing it. So one way of doing it is to never um, identify the data with a person at all. And then it doesn't matter if it's a private company or the CDC or who has it. You just have anonymous person was in contact with somebody who was two days before symptoms started and then five days later they tested, they got symptoms and six days later they tested positive and you get that, it's called lineless data without any information. So that No, spa no spatial kind of component or that's location right. no or spatial. anything like it's, that. It's all proximity. Wow. So that data is really safe and it doesn't much matter who, you know, you could publish that on the internet for any statistician to to, you know, transparency might be the best solution there that, you know, to show that it's safe. And then there's data like, oh, no, I was the person and the person, you know, whose key it corresponded to is me. And obviously that you want protected so that, you know, people opt to share that. I mean, in the US, it's the counties who do the contact tracing, not the state, not the CDC. And so you'd need to, and, and that's actually, that's the other thing. Google and Apple didn't respect that. They said that only nations or in the case of of the u.s states could access the technology they didn't respect the fact that in the u.s system uh contact tracing is a county responsibility and a tribal nation responsibility and at my university i mean i mean we're under the auspices of the county but we do our own contact tracing um so it would be the 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 entity that is responsible for contact tracing that's the only one who should have personal information um, but the information that you can get the data from, hopefully, you know, you make it safe enough that it could be public. So I'm, I'm wondering whether we have the will as a society to work on these kinds of collective issues anymore is kind of what I want to say, because you, you just said, you know, Dr. Maisel, you said, well, if you have COVID, we kind of consider it your responsibility. Let us know where you've been. It's like, I'm not sure that's a widely held conviction. And when we talk about the CDC and the state that they're in and how much more we need them to be in order to fight these kinds of issues, it's like, but that's a public health investment that's required. And I, I'm just, there is such a strong sentiment against any collective action these days, even the most fundamental of which like public health. I just wonder whether we can get over these hurdles. And I'm curious, Dr. Mazel, for you in particular, since you work in this space, have, to what extent have you discovered yourself to be in more of a minority than you thought? Your, your colleagues think the same way you do, and the folks on this podcast think the same way you do, but we've discovered that there's a pretty strong sentiment against collective action, even in the canonical cases for collective action. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, I think the collective action problem is a societal problem, but I think there are also some public health problems. Like I think you and we were, all of us in this conversation are on the same, are on the same thing. In Whether it's in finance or whether it's in sport, you have to take risks seriously or you lose. Like it is accountable. Now, when you talk about, say, quarantine and isolation policies and things like that, those are also complicated gambles of, of, of plays that you make that come out with probabilities. But there isn't the same accountability as to whether you've picked a good set of plays or not. Um, the consequences aren't there. And so what public health's attitude is, is it's a very, like, here are the rules. And the rules have to be simple. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, I suggested, oh, look, here's an algorithm. I got an equation. And if you tell me what day you were exposed and how many days, and I'm going to treat risk consistently, and I can output how long you should quarantine until. And they said, no, it has to be 14 days. No it's problem. always going to be 14 days. And somebody said to me, you know, in public health, it's very complicated how simple everything's got to be must be 14 days and we all have to be on board with this and I said but I'll keep it simple I'll make it just a website you know the an app that says stay home till Friday right I'll get you know the user user's not going to know it's complicated we'll keep it you know we'll put all of the complicated algorithm under the hood what are right. the but of course they failed it what went from 14 days to 10 days to seven days except if you get this test to five days except this test like they've changed the rules so many times eventually because, in fact, you can't fight scientific uncertainty. But public health thought it could. And so, that's a big mistake they made. So, actually, Adi had a question he was trying to jump in about the model. Well, I, I was just wondering, like, what, what are the factors that would make that variable? I mean, I, I read some of the papers that where 14 days was used, and essentially that was the 99.75 or so <laughs> confidence range, prediction interval. And that's where it came from. And so, it's a round number. <laughs> so um, my work, again, with also with James Petrie, um, is, you know, is basically the socially optimal policy is that you should stay at home if your risk is substantially above the average in the population. If you're, you know, basically it's the expected number of people you're going to affect today if you went out. Right. If you're worse than average, you should take more precautions than average. And so that is, that's a function of many things. It's a function of what day you were exposed, how bad the exposure was, whether you're vaccinated, how many days it's been that you haven't had symptoms yet, um, whether you've had any negative tests in the meantime. And the thing is, we, we can put all of that in equation. I mean, that's just conditional probability. We can do all that. Um, but, you know, and, and an app, of course, can do it like effortlessly and just come up with a totally simple recommendation at the end of it. We can put all of the sophistication of finance or sports into quarantine and isolation policy. Um, you should do it. There, there, there frankly, no one's be... paying any attention to the CDC's remarks right now. And people would love to know something that's actually workable and correct. Well, I can't do it because Apple didn't make the... You know, and then uh, then they've only given the access to states. I'm not a state government. I can't do that. And then everyone would have to opt in to download it. And but yeah. I, I want you just to come put a little app so we can punch up our own factors and come up with our own number. Is that? Yeah, that's doable. We could build a widget where you could put in your own stuff. Test. I got a negative. I don't see anyone. Shane's very very exposed. But you know, you put it all this. <laughs> Shane's always exposed. Stay away from Shane. 
The great thing about this widget is what people don't realize is that it all depends on, it's not just about your exposures, it's about what else is out there. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a low bar right now, to, you know, a high bar to be more dangerous than the average person on the street right. because so many people on the street are already infected. So that's the thing. You should be super stringent if you're in a zero COVID country or something. And right now you've got to be pretty dangerous before you're more dangerous than average. And, and that also, that needs to adjust for the local, the local thing. And what's happened is that's adjusting by force. The CDC, you know, under overwhelming pressure has suddenly caved the guidelines. But really it would be better to have something that just naturally adjusted to what's going on in a, you know, just treat risk consistently. I mean, in finance or gambling, but, if you but, don't do that, you lose. Okay, but Dr. Maisel, isn't it one of the one of the main things we've learned, I think, about epidemiology, this is an absurd thing for me to say, but um, is, is the importance of foaling in human behavior. The, the, the initial models, the initial, initial forecast, were, were, they just kind of factored out human behavior. And I feel like you, I, I'm totally sympathetic to your position here in terms of what's optimal, but there are limitations on what can be communicated and processed and, and held I mean, do you, do you not accept that there are any limitations on how nuanced our policy can be and actually digested and used by the population? Well, that's why I think tech can help. So that, you know, by having a good tech system, you keep it super simple for the user. You need to do your test on this day, stay home on that day. Really, you know, basically stay home. Get a test tomorrow, stay home until a negative result comes back. And also minimise your requests on people. I mean, I think one of the, the great things that's been adopted in the UK is to abolish most quarantine and replace it by daily rapid antigen tests. You know, that to me, I want to minimise the amount of quarantine and isolation mm-hmm. that we do. Mm-hmm. And, and I want the public to, you know, it would be nice if the public health are... Uh, the public felt that public health had their back on that. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you stand up for these long quarantines and isolation and you resist testing, and I've been told many times, there'll be no testing out of it. And of course, now there is testing out of it, <laughs> you know. Uh, but if you, uh, you know, if you respect others, maybe they'll respect public health more. Mm. So, I was just going to ask you related to your earlier comment, but on this topic about maybe having an app or something, given your concerns about the data quality and the fact that it's not up to date, there's challenges with it. How much value would you put in an app where the data is spotty? It's non-station. There's lots of non-stationarity. In other words, could you ever come up with an app that you as a scientist would feel comfortable saying, whatever, let's say length of quarantine recommendation that comes out of it, that you would feel comfortable with the degree of uncertainty that still remains? Yeah, I think, I think we can do better than what we have right now. And I think we can, build, most importantly, we can build a self-correcting system where if somebody comes out of quarantine and then tests positive the day after <laughs> or symptoms start the day after, you know, that data goes into the system and is part of the self-correction. Um, so the point is, if the app is both giving out recommendations and collecting massive longitudinal data in a, in a, in a fully anonymous fashion, then it solves the problem that it needs solved, to be solved in order to be effective. 
Um, and get enough quality statisticians working on it and get enough publics so that everyone can scrutinize whether they've done a good job or not. Yeah, it feels like the transparency that you have now advocated for multiple times in the last half hour is an important ingredient in some of the policies you're suggesting. Because you just mentioned this wonderful thing, self-correcting, self-correcting policies. Actually, the transparency is kind of a meta self-correction because it, it helps you know, provide some boundaries on what the administrators might otherwise do. All of this makes me wonder when, whether and when we will have kind of an accounting of what we've learned about public health and public health administration and public policy regarding health. Shouldn't we have learned a lot in the last two years that should inform how we do things in the future? You're advocating for the use of technology. You're advocating for more flexible guidelines. These are these are kind of fundamental ways we go about this. Where's the discussion going to be? Like the actual policy with real consequences discussion going to be around these issues and when? That's an amazing question. And, and I think the, I think we're at a critical time where there's been a lot of don't criticize the CDC. They have a terrible job. And I, I see just cracks in that right now where mm-hmm. people are willing to speak up And I would like to see a new system. I've been thinking about ways of building, like, I don't know if you guys know in Taiwan, there's this movement, Fork the Government, where you, like, copy government websites and set up a, it's called GovZero movement. So it's like, instead of .gov, it's .g0v. And, like, could we get, 50 experts, like proper experts in all the relevant disciplines, including statistics, and use some Wikipedia-style model to get them to keep incrementally improving. And the idea is to come up with new guidance that is so much better that eventually the idea of forking the government, like in programming, you make a separate copy of it, that eventually it gets merged back, that the CDC can say, hey, that's so much better than what we have, that we'll just make that the new government website. And I think we need initiatives like this. I think we need, you know, part of our problems are failures of governance and part of the solutions need to be innovations that will make government work better. Mm-hmm. And some of that is from the inside that needs reform and some of that can be external pressure and, uh, you know, and, and disruptive activities that provide alternatives, not to the whole government, it's too large, obviously, but to key bits and pieces, especially those bits and pieces that need to be very nimble. Right. Super intriguing idea. And that seems doable. That doesn't seem that that's that crazy. That's so sign us up. Let us know how we can be helpful. But by the way, real quickly, just, you know, you've got an Australian accent. I'm not entirely sure. I know what you're saying. You're saying fork the government. Is this correct? This that is, is the name of the movement, yeah. And it's from forking in programs? Is that is yep, this? Yeah, that's right. Like might be about something else as well, but that's technically what it is. Okay, got it. <laughs> Super interesting. Fork as in a, a knife like and a different fork. word, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Dr. Maisel, uh, it's been a delight and informative, and we really appreciate you making the time. We appreciate what you're doing, your work, both the actual academic work and the, and the public work you're doing on some of these CDC issues. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. 
of course, is Dr. Basil. She is a uh, university professor at the University of Arizona, and uh, she's an evolutionary biologist who's found herself involved with COVID-19 research over the last couple of years. Thank you, Dr. Maisel. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You can join us in a way. We love it when you do. Hit us up on Twitter. At WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter. At WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and analytics. A little bit of COVID. And we love to hear from you. Questions, complaints, ideas, whatever you got. You can also send us email. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at Wharton.upen. Edu. That's our mailbag of sorts. We listen, we read rather, we read everything you send us. We get as much as we can on the air and read what you send our way. And we're always glad to hear from you. We are rolling into Q2. We have a couple of open topics segments in Q2 and Q3. And then an interview Q4, we have our longtime friend, Josh Hermsmeyer talking some football, professional side of football, mostly uh, in Q4. But guys, we had a big, uh, College football game last night, the last game of the college year. Sad, sad college football winter that we're entering now. Got a long stretch before fall camp in August. Any observations from the game last night? Georgia finally overcame Alabama. They got their first national championship since, I don't know, 1980, 1981, something like that. It's a long drought for one of the most loaded teams over the last 10 years. Did you watch the game? Did you enjoy the game? Did you come away thinking Georgia was the better team? Any observations on the title game last night? I watched the game. Um, I thought that uh, it shows that Alabama's depth is not limitless. And that, um, you know, once they're obviously their number one receiver, Mechie, had been out already towards ACL. Uh, Williams, I think, was the other receiver that got injured in the second quarter of the game on like a freak long play. So now their top two receivers are out. Uh, I understand their top three or four corners were out. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, um, Georgia's players who they had available were better than the Alabama players that were left. Now, you could say full strength this, full strength that, but that's not an interesting counterfactual to me. Given who played yesterday, I thought Georgia was the better team. And I thought exactly what happened. Now, if... I think in their first couple of drives, I think uh, I know this Alabama was one for four in the red zone, one touchdown, three field goals. If those, if a couple of plays go differently and guys can actually catch the ball on Alabama who dropped the ball, maybe Alabama's up 21, nine, 21, 12 could be a totally different ball game. Well, but Eric, you can, yeah, that, and that, you, hold, you can flip that around though and say, look, Georgia gave up, you know, in, in most of those drives, they gave up one big play. So they get most of the way down there in a play and then they held up. And I want to give yeah. the Georgia B some, some credit. I, I do too. I, I thought the better team won the game, the better team in terms of who was available to play in the game. Georgia was the better team. And I, I'm not going to disagree with that, but I guess, you know, I, 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 Watching the game, it seemed to me like it really was like I like Georgia was the better team, but like, you know, 52 percent to 48 percent or something like that. I feel like it a couple plays could have totally given a much different like that interception. I mean, you know, I'm, interceptions are already chancy things. And that pick at the end of the game, obviously that that sealed it. But, you know, I, 
I think, you know, if that intercept doesn't happen, I mean, you know, we're probably talking about Alabama driving down the field. Can we also talk about just analytics just before that play? Uh, Shane, did you agree with Georgia not going for two? So just for all our listeners, Georgia's up seven. They just score. They go up seven points. There's whatever, two, two thirty, two minutes, 40 seconds left. If they go for two, and remember, they had just run 10 straight running plays where the minimum they gained was five yards. And remember, it was a 15-yard penalty on Alabama where the ball could have been moved to the one-yard line. Georgia still kicks the extra point to go up eight. Someone has to explain to me from an analytics perspective why Georgia doesn't go for two there from the one-yard line. Remember, they're already up seven. (laughs) Yeah. No, and I mean, I I think – I mean – Without that penalty, I could maybe make an argument because, you know, it's probably, you know, uh, your Alabama probably has, you know, it, it does add basically if they don't get it, Alabama, you know, well, I, I mean, they're already up by seven. But, you know, if they if, Adi, you've looked going at up the data, by eight right? forces Alabama yeah. to make haven't you looked going at the up data? by eight forces Alabama looked, to make a two I haven't, I haven't done this calculation, but it does seem that going for two would put you up nine or seven. Right. So score would be a tie. And then it'd be, and then you have 50% in an overtime and nine means you basically won, right? That's, I think that's, that's what I think the psychology of it is. Eric is upset that they missed a chance to put the game out of play, go up yeah. by nine, two score game with that much time and it's out of play. But they're one, thinking the opposite. The Hold on. But Adi, they're thinking the opposite, which is we're going to kick the PAT and we're going to guarantee that we don't lose in the next two minutes because the best Alabama can do is go down the field and convert a two point and tie us. So we're going to take losing off the table. Eric wanted them to guarantee winning. And but, that's, a. am not saying it's right. I'm just saying, I think yeah, this, okay. this, this is a classic loss aversion, right? I yes. Mean, yes, of course. And it's, but it's also a very traditional way of decision-making in football. It wasn't, it wasn't crazy, but it, but the one, the one yard line opportunity was, I agree hundred percent. Yeah. Given that they had the penalty, I, I think, well, I think it was I think indefensible that they didn't go for two. Doesn't one yard line make it um, like 75%? That's what I was 50? asking you, Adi. I thought you yeah. had looked at this data. Oh, oh, that's that, the data I was asking question. you about. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's much higher. Yes. Okay. It's 50% from the two, but that's the professionals. I don't know Alabama, Georgia, how that breaks down. I mean, I, I'll reinforce Eric's observation that, you know, the entire drive leading to that touchdown was them yeah. gaining these like five, six yards every run. So right. why not? I like Shane's observation that any number of plays could have gone the other way and flip the game. And I think this is what you see in football against two highly closely matched teams. They do come down to play. Yeah. And there's a lot of chance there. There's there's individual performance and there's some chance. So consider the long pass, the 40-yard pass from Stetson um, on the on the first touchdown when they first went ahead. That was a that was a the guy was perfectly covered. I mean, it was just, yeah. I mean, it, was, it could have been anything, Jump anything ball. could have happened. Could anything could have happened on that play. And you want to give the receiver credit for it, but at the same time, you realize, you know, that's what these things convert on. Go back four years to the national championship game they played and lost. When Tua comes in the second half and at the end of the game hits this bomb down the side, it's like one play, one phenomenal executed play, won that game for Alabama. And it's not all games that go like this, but sometimes it does. And you have to remark, like there's some chance, and then there's just unbelievable individual effort that happens to separate. 
I like what Shane said. I don't think there was any point in that game where someone said, oh, my God, what are these two teams doing here? And secondly, oh, my God, this team's routing that other team. That wasn't the game either way. These were two very evenly matched teams. Maybe, as Shane said, 52-48, at best 55-45 at one point. And I'll stand by my statement, which is the Alabama team that was on the field because of injuries was the worst of the two teams. And that I, I still feel that way. But could a couple of plays have turned it the other way very, very easily, very easily. And I thought, by the way, there were questionable calls many times. Besides Smart not going for two, there was a time where uh, it was fourth and two. Alabama had the ball at the Georgia 40, and he punted the ball. Mm -hmm. So Saban made a bunch of questionable calls on not going it at fourth and two from various parts of the field. I'm not even talking about pro NFL level going from the 18 yard line. Like yeah, the I was going to say, don't uh, you go for it even in your own 12, uh, you know, South of your own 20, right? I mean, that's, that's for sure. That's but a, you certainly that, go for it when you're on the other move. team's 40. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, no, not, I, it's, not, it's not terribly surprising that the, that the very best programs in the country are not at the vanguard of the, aggressive play calling uh, analytics movement. It's, it's almost by nature going to come from the, the revolutionaries below. Um, sp- speaking of which, any observations on the NFL? The playoffs bracket is set. Um, it's been an adventurous season, to say the least. Do you think we're in for an adventurous playoffs, or are we going to get some chalky thing that's going to disappoint us? Well, I, I mean, oh, you know, I, I, I think I, – I think- I think there'll be some upsets in the playoffs, whether it'll be sort of like, you know, I, I'm not going to probably necessarily deviate from like a, a Green Bay, um, Kansas City prediction or something like that for the Super Bowl. I think that's still the highest probability kind of, you know, that's that, that would be my prediction if I had to make a single. Well, you don't real quickly. Let's say you're on the market because the two yeah. betting favorites for Super Bowl winner are, in fact, the Packers and the Chiefs. Now, interestingly, the Chiefs don't even have that number one slot yeah. over in the AFC. Yeah, yeah. The Packers do, so they have the advantage of the bye as well. But the Chiefs are getting the nod out of the AFC, even though they have to play an extra game. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah that I think that's Kate. You picked up something when I look when I looked at the ELO ratings on playoff chance on five thirty eight. Twenty one percent for the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. Twelve percent for the Titans, and the Chiefs have to play an extra game. Yeah. So yeah. that is extraordinary. I mean, that's extraordinary. That well, it, so it would, I also think it's extraordinary that Green Bay, even though I, I guess they're my modal prediction, they're getting basically 80% to, to make the conference championship game, even though that would at least involve one. You know, they actually have to do, do, they do actually have to play a game to get to that AFC <laughs> conference championship. Well, so right? who are they likely to play there? They're, the Rams. This, if it okay. goes by chalk. The Rams. If it goes if by chalk. Yeah, yeah if, right. Well, no, no, that's not true. <laughs> It's not true. We're making an assumption San Francisco doesn't beat Dallas. If San Francisco beats Dallas, the lowest remaining seed yeah, plays right. Green Bay. So right. I think San Francisco could absolutely beat Dallas. If San Francisco beats Dallas and the Rams win, then the Rams would go to probably Tampa Bay, assuming Tampa Bay beats the Eagles. Well, now, you, you, would, would you give Green Bay, even against the, like, the dream scenario where they play kind of the worst team in your estimation in that divisional round, would you give Green Bay, like against any team, an 80%? Yes. Up any if, Green, team? If, if Green Bay somehow, if the Eagles were to go into Tampa and win, and by the yeah. way, just no, no, if he asked any team, if Green Bay were to play the Eagles, yeah, I'd give Green Bay an 80% chance. But oh. no, a division winner like Cowboys or Rams, 
Absolutely not. Hold on, they don't hold on a minute. Can I get a sense? What is the maximum uh, power ranking differential, like a Massey Peabody or an, uh, on the two, on the two the best and the worst teams in the playoffs? Well, we, we, we've been, just to be clear, we've been floating around. The top team has been floating around plus eight, plus eight and a half all year. And if you look at some other rankings there, they might have a different team, but they're up there about the same point. And the bottom teams in the playoffs right now are near zero, maybe just a touch above, according right. to some, maybe just a touch below. That's, so we're talking about eight than, to nine, eight to nine points. That's less than one standard deviation. On a neutral field. On a neutral field. Yeah, add a couple points. Right. So basically, if the best team plays the worst team, you're you're maybe at about 80 percent. Right. Yeah. But that that 80 percent is kind of like, you know, at least supposed to be kind of average across all their possible competition. Weighted towards towards the better. I think 80 percent. Yeah, I think way too high. Well, that was what Shane was saying is that, yeah. and Tate was saying is that looking at the Packers, at least going to 538, they have a 77% yeah. chance of making the conference championship game. They do have to play a game against the playoff team. Yeah. And, you know, if it turns out, let's say if it goes, everything goes to chalk and they play the Rams, I don't know. They don't have an yeah. 80% chance of beating yeah, the Rams. So let me, I want to jump into um, some sims that I ran using three systems. So I've been running two and I ran three this time. But um, real quickly before we do that, Again, I think it's interesting that we've got the, this is the first year with the buy. And I hate the buy because I don't think one team should get that much of an advantage. But interestingly, in the AFC, some, some people believe the Packers aren't the best in the NFC. I mean, there's, there's Tampa Bay. How would you like to be the three seed? And instead of get, you got to go, you're, 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 your treat for being three instead of four is that you get to play Tampa Bay instead of Green Bay. It's not clear to me that's good, but it's even more marked in the AFC where the Bills, if they come through, get the, get the reward of playing the, playing Chiefs, the Chiefs instead of the Titans. And since Cincinnati, if they win their game against Las Vegas, get to go up against. The Look, the biggest, the biggest beneficiary of the, uh, what happened the last week of the season? Besides, obviously, when the Colts lost, like the, the Steelers got I think in the, the Steelers playoffs, are by was, far the biggest. No, no, they're the biggest recipient. <laughs> but in the NFC, just continue just to finish that off. The Bucks went from the four seed to the two seed. So, and they're playing the Eagles, who everyone would agree is the worst of the playoff teams in the NFC. And therefore, the Bucks got an easier first round. They've now got a home game in the second round if they beat the Eagles. And instead of potentially playing the Rams, who they got blown out by at SoFi Stadium, they're playing the Cowboys, who most people would think are weaker than the Rams. So the Bucks win probability of at least going to the NFC Championship game went up tremendously in Week 18 of the season. And there's no doubt about it. Let me give you some numbers. I know we've looked at market numbers. We've looked at 538s. What I ran, I ran Massey Peabody, FPI, and PFF. I ran sims for each of those systems out of unabated and then ensemble the results. So just an average of those three systems. PFF is quite different. PFF really likes Green Bay versus everybody else. Everybody else is kind of flat. I mean, we're flat across a bunch of teams. FPI is flat across a bunch of teams. But you average all these things together and you have Green Bay with a 34% chance to make it out of the NFC. The next down is Tampa Bay at 25 and with an 18% chance to win the whole thing. So they really like Green Bay. This is you know, all three systems average across. And then KC and Tennessee equal coming out of the AFC and, uh, and about equal for winning the Super Bowl at 27-27. Again, that's a counterbalance between, I mean, 
KC plays one more game than Tennessee, yeah. but has the same probability. No, it's, it's amazing that they have the same probability as a team that plays one less game. So, so Kate, you'll also notice in our rundown, I also put in the betting odds. So don't yeah. you think Tennessee, relative to KC, KC's a plus 450, Tennessee's a plus 850? Given that, doesn't Tennessee at plus 850 seem like an opportunity, given they're betting-wise almost 2-1, to one, and your ensemble sim has it at 1-1? One to one. That seems yeah. like enough of a spread to at least think about Tennessee. And you know, Derrick Henry's coming back. Yeah, you'd like it if you could, you could do a little bet where you, that, that you'd take a head-to-head with, some, with the favorable odds of Tennessee making it further than Kansas City. That's what you'd really like. You'd, that too. To, um, all right, guys, one last thing I wanted to jump on before we get out. Oh, yeah, we're going to run out of time. So let's, let's talk a little bit more football at the start of Q3, but we've got some other sports to pick up on as well. We've got a little bit of NBA we want to talk about. There's something going on down in Australia with a tennis player, I suspect. Eric wants to chat about that as well. But let's do that in Q3. Thank you for listening. This has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter, another open lines, open topics. It's going to be a short quarter here. We've got a long-gish interview with our friend Josh Hermsmeyer in Q4. Stick around for that. Guys, we were talking a little bit of football there at the end of Q2, all of Q2. That's what we're want to do. I want to make a couple of observations. We'll get this visual out on, on, uh, on Twitter here in the next day or two. But Massey Peabody, we, we run game grades for each game of the season. And um, it's a way of looking a little more objectively about the performance in a particular game, as opposed to the, usually we're talking about the cumulative power ranking over a whole season plus a prior. So it's always fun to look at these at the end of the year, especially for the playoff teams, because you see how much teams bounce around. And I was especially interested this year because it feels like, my gosh, I mean, Kansas City, if you look at what happens, they start out reasonably strong. They take this huge dip in the middle of the season, and then they really start coming back stronger at the end of the year. If you look at someone like Philadelphia, their performance looks pretty sound in the second half of the season. You know, they're performing at like the 75th percentile pretty steadily, unless you're suspicious that they played lousy teams. If you're one of these momentum people, you look at someone like San Francisco and they've been really high for the second, you know, last eight or nine weeks. Dallas has been trending up. New England, not so much. They've had a good, you know, last couple, you know, week 14, week 15, I mean, 15, 16. But before that, it was the second half of the season was just a dive. Do you think we can read much into this kind of stuff? Or do you think we're just kind of reading tea leaves? I'm going with tea leaves, Kane, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something to be said for it. I mean, we, we talked about like huh, some very kind of almost predictable non-stationarity. I mean, there's there's reasons to believe that San Francisco kind of second half is more representative going forward than their first half because, you know, they had a ton of injuries and a lot of those players, people have been kind of getting healthy and certainly Green Bay's and Tennessee have both kind of gotten key pieces back going into the playoffs. So I think, I think there's some, there's something beyond tea leaves for some of these teams, but I, you know, I just look at, for example, Tampa Bay has like a little bit of a downward slope according to this going into the model, but that's entirely driven by, that one, one New game. Orleans game where, yeah, I yeah. mean, they definitely laid an egg in that game, but otherwise <laughs> yeah. it's been great. Well, yeah. so it's uh, interesting, Cade, what I look at when I look at these graphs, the first thing I was looking for is not the trend, was the maximum. So I look at Pittsburgh and I say, 
they never had a really good game. They have not one single data point above 0.75. But just to be clear, 75th percentile. 75th percentile, right. Right. So that's the first thing I looked at. They have, there's no massive upside. Eric, by the way, look at on the same dimension, look at Las Vegas. They had a couple of best performances of the entire They did, and they did. Las Vegas played some really, really good games against really good opponents this year. And I look at also Tampa Bay. If we ignore the New Orleans game, almost every one of their games was above the 75th percentile. And Mm -hmm. so to me, when I'm looking at these graphs, I'm actually less looking at trends, but more looking at the maximum and kind of the number of weeks of high performance. Those Mm -hmm. are the two summary statistics. If I was going to summarize these graphs, if there was some signal in this, that's what I'm looking at. Well, Mm -hmm. I have to say, I'll just add what I'm seeing is uh, uh, just bewilderment that Pittsburgh is in the playoffs. Yeah, well, everyone's bewildered about that. I mean, what kind of system do we have here? Uh, you know, um, and that seems to be well, Casey. Casey also looks like a U shape. You know, started off great and plummeted, and then kind of all of a sudden not a. That's true. Here. That so, is what happened. But also, we should talk yeah. since you mentioned Adi about Pittsburgh making the playoffs. We should talk about that because we made predictions last week that if the L.A. Chargers Las Vegas Raider game was close near the end. Oh, it almost and happened. Both teams, and, and remember, and the Jaguars had to beat the Colts, which, by the way, the third... Unbelievable. The, the, well, Unbelievable. Just to let you yeah. know, besides that being a 15-point spread, which, by the way, was... Therefore, it makes the third greatest upset against the spread in the history of the NFL. Is that fact, true? Yep, I, I looked at it. 17 and a half is the largest ever. There was a 16, and then there's this 15. Jeez. But the fact that they this is won the largest by upset against the spread, not against the spreads. Spread. Yeah, okay. right. Against right. the spread. Yeah. But also the fact that they won by 15 means is a 30 point delta <laughs> against the spread. So let's that I, I couldn't find that data to see if that was near that's, the largest. My guess is that's gonna, not. It's yeah, no way. Some awesome, games are yeah. 60 to five or something. Exactly. But either way, <laughs> the part that was interesting is and we talked about this last week with 30 sec a minute left in overtime. They can both just it, kneel on yeah, the ball. They could have kneeled. Kneeled on the ball. Now, you guys talked about this last week, and we were talking about this through chat during the week. This is you, Shane. The Raiders had an incentive yeah. to win that game because, number one, they go to the five seed now. Now, what advantage does that mean? Well, it means they're playing the four seed, which is not Kansas City. They were potentially, I think if they had made it, they would have either had to play Kansas City. Now they have a better seed there. Second, they can win that game. They can absolutely, I I forget even who they're playing, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, right? Yeah, they didn't didn't know kind of like, I mean, I'm not even sure when this collusion agreement would have had to happen, like whether they do it at the actual coin toss. But yeah, they would have known that Cincinnati was going, it's between Cincinnati and KC when they could have made the decision to need The Raiders, if they want to make it as far as possible in the playoffs, they've made their road a lot easier. They're playing Cincinnati now instead of Kansas City. And maybe it goes to chalk then maybe they're playing the Titans instead of playing Kansas City also. So they stay away from Kansas City as far as they have. So to say they had nothing to play for is not exactly yeah. right. No, that's I, right. I still right. think there's some interesting strategy. But like I, yeah, once they kind of got – once they'd actually – in that final drive in overtime, once they'd basically gotten over midfield, I feel like there was absolutely no downside to doing what they did, which is try and get in field goal range and go for the field goal. By trying, you mean, but just running the ball. They were just running yeah. the ball. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's on Los Angeles for, you know, knowing they were just going to run the ball and not being able to stop them. Right. Um, but I, but 
let's back up, like, you know, go like a minute back where they're on like their own 20 or 25 yard line. At that point, yeah, I mean, you still have the ball and it can drive to win it, but turnover, like, especially if you were going to employ not just running it straightforward, if you were going to employ like a real offensive strategy, the risk of a turnover could knock you out of the playoffs. So I kind of feel like it was almost like a, it was a less obvious decision point 100%. earlier in that drive when they were in their own side of the field than it was kind of right at the end. Like, you know, like people were kind of still surprised that they went forward instead of just kneeling down. I was, once they crossed midfield, I knew they were going to at least try and score. An interesting feature of that chain is that I, I don't know how much they thought about this, but LA did not have the same asymmetric outcomes mm-hmm. from tire win. And so they yeah. could have counted on LA. LA would have been the team more likely to play uber conservative or even kneel yep. because it just didn't matter as long as they didn't lose. Oh yeah, no, famous for conservative play. Those those uh, yeah, <laughs> those right, 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 right. <laughs> and then the other last thing about the playoffs we'll see is there are two two games between division opponents. So it's the third third uh, time yeah. they'll be playing each other: Cardinals, Rams, and Bills, Patriots. And so I'm very interested to see what happens in those, especially given I think the Bills beat the Patriots twice this year. Is no, that no, they split, right? They split. The Patriots had that crazy game, Monday night football game in Buffalo where they didn't oh, yeah. pass it. Right, right, right. Thank you. Did, right. uh, did the Rams, did the Rams Cardinals split or did they, was it, or did the, I can't remember either. But yeah, I, I mean. The Cards might have swept them, but I, yeah. I could have that wrong. Um, on the NFL, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do. And during the show, we've gotten the news that Joe Judge is out as the New York Giants head coach. They Now, they did that after the GM. They fired Gettleman, or he resigned uh, yesterday, the day before. Retired, um, technically. Retired. Retired. Um, Shane, you're you're lamenting the loss of Joe Judge. Oh How yeah, did- no, I was kind of I the fact I mean I was shocked that Joe Judge survived kind of you know the Black Monday sort of like wave of firings, and I'm a little bit sad that he didn't stay. I'm a little bit sad that he's not going to be the coach of the New York Giants next year. But um, why? Just well, just you- as a person who just likes who who just has kind of a, a, a dislike of the Giants, basically. Okay, I mean, well, so that- I mean just to kind of give an illustration of something that I saw like on Sunday not playoff consequential, but like was one of the craziest things I've ever seen is they had, uh, it was like third and nine um, on their own. So like five yard line, seven five, yard line, like, or, or like, you know, 10, 10, they're backed up in their own and they essentially ran a QB sneak. Yeah. On third and nine. Yeah, in like a sure, kind of a victory not? formation. Yeah. Like it was like, like, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine like a more, I give up no, it's trying incredible. to play football kind of play than what that, what was that? I, it would, it just, that was, it seemed like an unacceptable football play. I think the more surprising firing, that one wasn't surprising. I think the ones that, that, was maybe, Hold on, that wasn't surprising to you, Eric, that they fired judge. Oh, that, oh. I thought you, they, they no, no, no. That was it. not surprising to me, yeah. but the fact that the dolphins fired Flores yeah. The yeah. fact that, you know, maybe he has not done a, hard, a great job, but the Bears fired Nagy, maybe. The Vikings fired Zimmer. You know, these are three coaches that have done a decent job. They've made the playoffs. They've, they certainly have 500 or slightly winning records. And my view is, you know, 
Give me the names of the alternatives that you're going to hire that's necessarily going to do better. So if the floor is fire, especially given he won eight out of the last, last nine does games. It, I'm pretty it, sure they beat the it, Patriots twice this year. You doesn't know, there have to be something else going on behind that story? Doesn't there have to be something inside the building or some, some could, backstory? Could be. No, could no. Be. And I mean, I do think like kind of the dysfunction around, you know, to uh, like this, like I, I, I think. As far as what I've been reading, it's all kind of speculation, but I, I think it's sort of like, it seems like there was just kind of a breakdown in the relationships, the trust basically between Tua yeah, and so- Flores that kind of, because, because I mean, yeah, if you look at his record and his performance, especially, I mean, like, you know, have anywhere close to a winning record with that Dolphin, like, Two or three years ago, that Dolphins team looked like, you know, the Jaguars look now where you're like, I'm not even sure they're going to be able to win a game this season. So I, I, I'm i surprised given the results. It must be, as you guys are suggesting, some kind of dysfunction kind of behind the scenes, basically. So it's, I'm always slow to judge those things without knowing uh, something about the owners who are making the decisions. And I don't have any insight into those ownerships, but I mean – like Eric is suggesting, I mean, owners aren't known for doing this particularly well. It is, I think it's a hard thing to do hiring coaches. And it's not clear to me, like Eric said, who, who are you going to go get? We're a little low on time or else I'd ask the question, how would you, if given the opportunity, hire an NFL coach, what kind of person do you want to hire? What are you looking for? These coaching jobs are just unbelievably complicated. Um, well, take, take uh, you, you just grab a real, a, a coach that's had a really successful tenure in, in college you know, and is a big name. Yeah, you know, big name. And grab, big grab, grab some ex-coach of Ohio State, and it's guaranteed to work out. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we've got the, the coaching carousel was extra interesting in college this year. It looks like it's going to be interesting in the NFL. I just I wonder if they're going to bring anybody. A lot of times they, they just go to the same kind of stock candidates yeah. and uh, even retreads, and it's the – unusual organization that hires someone like a Staley. I know he takes a lot of flack these days, but that's an innovative hire at least. And so here, here's some chances. We're going to learn something. All right, guys, that has been three as a quick quarter. That has been three quarters. We've still got one more quarter. We've got an interview segment coming up and talk a little bit more football with Josh Hermsmeyer. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Warden Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth and final quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment. In the time of COVID, we're delighted to have back to the show this week, Josh Hermsmeyer. Josh is a longtime friend of the show. He's a football writer and analyst at 538. He's also an entertaining follow. Let's go entertaining on Josh's Twitter follow. At Frisco Josh is his handle, at Frisco Josh. He enjoys... Um, a strong Twitter personality and presence worth the worth the follow for both the information and the entertainment. Josh, always a pleasure to see you. Welcome back to the show. Happy new year guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Happy new year to you. We saw you last here, I believe on our NFL preview show back in September. Um, great to catch you here at the end of the season. Um, curious to hear your thoughts as we roll into the playoffs. We know the field now it's been a, it's been a fun season. It's been a different, it's been the least chalky of the seasons in a while. It's been high variance. Even the good teams have had long stretches of poor performance. We've got the whole crew in here. Everybody has stuff to ask you, I'm sure, but let's just first get your thoughts coming out of week 18 and into the wild card round. What are your thoughts on the NFL? What's top of mind for you? 
interesting that you say it was a it was a strange year. I completely agree. I think uh, the, the chalk is one thing, but we have a home field advantage. It appears is back, which is interesting, and and, and back with a vengeance, maybe. Um, the- what do you know? What do you know about that? What's that looking like this year in the NFL? So the the people I was talking to, Timo Riske at uh, PFF, he he said, I think he's been on the show. He he mentioned that he had done a, a couple tests and he had found that it was between two point four and two point eight, um, and that's just include, I believe it was after week 17 and not week 18. So I don't know if that's changed at all. And it had moved drastically from week uh, 15 to week 16. So it was interesting. I think if you were, if you were betting under the assumption that home field advantage for most of the year was between 1.8 and two, you were probably correct and fine. Um, But at the end it made a move. And um, I just think that's an interesting fact of this, of this particular season that uh, maybe home field advantage is back. Is, well, the move, is the move just more data or is the move that like, you know, with the weather turning or something like that, there's certain locations that have more of a actual true home field advantage this time of year versus back in September. Yeah. I don't know the, the causal arrows here. He, yeah. he, uh, he said he did it two ways, one with a multi-level model and another with just a, just a pretty simple regression. And uh, they both came between those two, those two uh, boundaries. So anyway, I think that's interesting. I, you know, we, we've talked a lot on 538 in our chats about how strange the season has been and, um, you know, defensive flip-flopping in, uh, in Kansas City has been an interesting storyline in terms of them being one of the worst and then suddenly becoming one of the best defenses. And uh, perhaps the Bills being overrated because of their cupcake schedule early on. And um, so for, for, for a couple of those reasons, the playoffs are interesting to me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the Patriots-Bills part three. Right. And uh, and I'm also just for the nostalgia factor. I'm ready for this uh, 49ers Cowboys game. Well, we were just talking about where you're from. You were were you raised watching the Niners and pulling for the Niners? Were you influenced by those great teams back in the day? Sure was. Yeah, I remember when I was. Gosh, I was so young, so young that <clears throat> I, I should have been with my parents. But it was the first Super Bowl win for the 49ers, and everyone in the area in the Bay Area basically left their homes, and they all went out in this kind of communal thing, and just like wandered around the streets and into each other's homes. And I ended up in a neighbor's home at one point. And I just, I, I'll never forget that day. It was just, uh, and the feeling of it all. And, uh, um, okay, hold on. we're talking about, was it the Cincinnati game in like 82 or something? 82. Is that- yep. yep. That's right. That's right. And okay. I think, I think it was four or five or something. And uh, <laughs> I, I think that, I think that's when I fell in love with, uh, with football, just that. Gosh, I just had I just had lunch with a couple of guys here in Austin. One of them, a longtime Cowboys fan, and we both had the same thought on this weekend. Where you can't talk to a Cowboys fan without this game about this game, and and everyone goes back to the catch. I mean, everyone's still scarred by it. And that game was what was that? That was like eighty. Was that that year? That might have been that year. It probably was that year. It was that year that in the NFC Championship game, and we all have memories of where we were when Dwight Clark makes that catch in the back of the end zone. And we and we just we kind of have PTSD about a San Francisco playoff matchup. You know, I was I was hearing someone mention uh, on Twitter today. You know, there's always hot takes. I have some of them, as you mentioned. But uh, this guy was saying it actually wasn't that great of a catch if you look back and, and watch. It. <laughs> I, I don't no, know. It that. wasn't that it wasn't that difficult to catch. Look, the part that was hard, as far as I was concerned, was how did Joe Montana get that ball above? I think it was too tall. Jones was was going after him and you know guy was six nine and I thought the throw was impressive but actually the ball was right into Dwight Clark's hands I've seen I mean it wouldn't rank for me in the top 10 percent of hard catches ever made All trauma, right. or trauma-inducing playoff trauma-inducing catches, like ones off yeah. of helmets or something like that <laughs> right. there are those 
there are those. And that was Superville, no less. Well, okay. So you got the Niners back. They, uh, what do you think about that team? And what do you think about the NFC West in general? They've placed a couple teams in the playoffs. Both have been playing better as of late. How do you expect those two teams to work through the playoffs this year? Well, three, right? I mean, oh, uh, the Cardinals too. I'm thinking about the Rams and the Niners, but yeah, the Cardinals are in there, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess we have them six points uh, uh, for the Rams and I, 70% win probability. I think that's probably right. I, I haven't been a big, huge proponent of, of the Cardinals this year. I, I don't have a lot of faith in Kingsbury's coaching. I think that um, the team itself is, you know, they live and die by Kyler and, and Kyler's been making a lot of plays out of out of uh, structure and just kind of run around and throw the ball downfield. And that, that just kind of seems like their, their path to success. I don't know how sustainable that is. And uh, so I think the Rams will probably win. I think we got that right. And, uh, and I do, I do have some hope for the 49ers. We, we, it's basically the same win probability, 69% for the Cowboys and um, over the, over the 49ers. But I think the coaching there is quite a bit different. I think, uh, Kyle Shanahan is obviously one of the better offensive minds in the league, and the uh, and the Cowboys have shown that they can. Uh, I don't that their play isn't isn't entirely predictable, and the, and <laughs> I, I, uh, you know they're they're not someone you can really hang your hat on. So I can see that being an upset this weekend. Real, Josh, real quickly, real, real quickly, Eric, just on that one point, the predictability. What what team do you think is predictable this year? I mean, this 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 is. I haven't looked at the numbers on this exactly, but my from a distance, it sure feels like this has been one of the least predictable years in a while, at least among the high profile teams. Yeah, a lot of variance, as you mentioned, and uh, I, I did quite a few articles on just kind of measures of luck this year, just of good fortune, uh, things mm-hmm. like defensive pass interference and. Who gets the most of those? Who's been most fortunate with that fumble luck, uh, expected interceptions, all that kind of thing. And the, and the most fortunate team that kept on popping up is no longer in the playoffs, and that was the Colts. So that wasn't entirely surprising. But uh, I would say the most predictable team now, at least over the past few weeks, is is now the Chiefs. Um, I think their offense is operating at a high level again. And when they do uh, perform at that type of level in that type of way with their offense uh, and their passing offense specifically, I think they become a team that's quite projectable. Okay, one last one last question before these guys get in. I'm sorry, fellas, such in real quick. But now it raises the, one of our favorite topics on the show, and that is non-stationarity, a fancy way of talking about momentum. Eric is the flag bearer for momentum around here, and I'm here to tell you that non-stationary, the trends at the end of the season don't matter in the NFL playoffs, but, you know, it's a long season. It's, a, it's 18 weeks this year, by God, and – we can imagine it's not the same team at the end of the year as it was at the beginning. It's not as heavy his, empirically. The non-stationarity is not as present as it is in college football. You watched that title game last night, Alabama, you know, they're, they're had, had down half their key guys and they're still one of the very, very best teams in the country. They weren't that way all season. That team comes together. This is one of the things that happens with college. What about NFL? How should we think about it? It does feel like KC, Mid-season, it's like, whatever. And now they're back to, oh, my God, this could just be another Chiefs romp through things. Well, I mean, Mahomes has never had a slump outside this year. So, I mean, I think we need to take a longer view of the Chiefs. And Go ahead. Oh, no. No, no, no. Keep going, Josh. I'll jump in. No, I think we just need to take a longer view of the Chiefs in that regard. So, I, I think that what we're seeing now is a return to Mahomes mean and, and that mean reversion, I think, is something we can rely on. So, I would agree with you, though, that, uh, you know, just – taking the last four weeks gives you no extra predictive power um, mm-hmm. over and, and you should always take the, the larger sample. So, 
I want to build, uh, Josh, on the two games you picked and ask you but a, bo- a broader statistical question. But let me take them one by one. Let's first go with the Cardinals-Ram game. Um, the Cardinals were playing well until DeAndre Hopkins got injured. They were 10-1. and one. So how do you think about the value of individual players? One of the things we talk about on Wharton Moneyball all the time, outside of quarterbacks, maybe people are overvalued, but it's not obvious. Maybe if DeAndre Hopkins comes back, it'll be the 10-1 and one Cardinals who are the really good Cardinals. How do you think about that? I think it's a great point. I think that receivers can move the needle. I, I think obviously it's not something that uh, has a huge influence on, on outcomes, but uh, otherwise we would pick it up a little bit better in the data. But I, I think him coming back probably opens things up for, uh, you know, in the cliched way that uh, opens up other receivers opportunities. And, but I think, I think at the end of the day, uh, what drove that 10 and one team again is this stellar play out of structure play play by Kyler Murray. That was just, it's just very, it's very high variance. And, and, you know, when you, when you, when you have a guy who's uh, throwing balls on time and on target inside the structure of a play call and you're having success, I think that's something that's a lot more projectable and, and something you can really hang your hat on. Um, and the Cardinals just haven't been that team. They certainly haven't been that team uh, at the end of this year without Hopkins. Um, and, and I think to the extent that having Hopkins back allows that to be the case, I think that, uh, yeah, you're right. They have a better shot. Um, the Rams and Stafford, it's, I've not been a, a huge proponent of Stafford this year. I think that we have a long track record of his performance. And, and while matching him up with a great offensive mind and, and, and McVay has probably unlocked him to a certain extent, um, he's still who he is. I mean, we have a really good idea about what Stafford is. And he's a, he's a player who's capable of amazing highs and, and, and then following that up with some, with some pretty boneheaded plays and, uh, <laughs> and he does that pretty consistently. I mean, it's just it just seems to be uh, the case that you're going to get a game like we just had um, these past two weeks from Stafford, where he, I think he just threw three interceptions. Yep. Um, it, it's uh, it's, it's unfortunate, uh, and 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 hopefully um, you don't get that uh, negative variance in the playoffs. Obviously. And just to build on the other game you talked about quickly, the San Francisco and Cowboy game, um, we do a lot of work with ELO models, paired comparison, team A as a strength, team B as a strength. One of the things that I've heard that gives San Francisco a, a great chance, this is what I've heard, is that they run the ball a lot and the Cowboys run defense stinks. So how much when you think about probabilities in games, do you think about the actual, let's call them interaction terms of one style versus another, or you know maybe these simple models with just – Team A as a strength, Team B as a strength, but really you have to go at least one step deeper to really do the projection. That Your Cowboys uh, 49er game made me think about that because of the two strengths of the teams and weaknesses. Yeah, I think, that, uh, I think that's an interesting way to talk about the game and kind of paint the narrative of the game, but I've never found any, anything real there in terms of uh, predictiveness. I've just never found a way to say that, well, this matchup is really inherently going, you know, especially to the, to the point you made a poor run defense versus a great, great run offense. Um, I, I think more often it's the case that you come into a game with ideas about how it's going to actually unfold. And it's so easy for the other team to shore up a weakness that they're sure is going to be tried to take advantage of, especially mm-hmm. in the run game by adding players uh, to the line of scrimmage and taking that away. And then you're suddenly in a different game environment where, the team, if they want to win, is going to have to do the opposite of what they came in uh, planning to do. And I, I just think that happens in that uh, so often and, and, and it's in flux so much uh, that coming into a game with those kind of ideas or, uh, or, or, or formalizing them in your model 
um, is it's rare that it actually uh, helps you do uh, improve your predictions. Kind of talking about like kind of uh, consistency, predictability, and and, and kind of non stationary. Uh, a team that kind of popped into mind during that com- conversation, I think, is not really being discussed a lot, especially for a number one seed, is Tennessee. You know, and they've obviously been able to kind of succeed relatively consistently throughout like a ton of stuff that should have induced a hell of a lot of non-stationarity in their own kind of performance, both kind of in, uh, in terms of injuries and stuff like that. And so, I mean, I kind of feel like they're kind of going in, on, certainly under hype for a number one seed. Is it really just the absence of, a, you know, kind of that like elite sort of level quarterback that's leading to a lack of hype? Like, why aren't people buying into Tennessee more? It's a good question. They seem to be on the bandwagon when Derrick Henry was fully healthy and, and running wild uh, uh, across the league. And 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 while I uh, I don't put much truck in the idea that that running backs are difference makers, that they're highly replaceable, he seems to be one that that is important. And uh, if you put any um, any value into with or without you analysis in the NFL, I don't know how much we should. Um, but he he always seems to pop up pretty highly um, whenever anyone. Uh, does those types of analysis. And so when he's off the field, the team seems to be performing at a, at a, at a lower rate and a lower EPA per play rate. So uh, I would say with him back, if he is back and he is fully healthy, um, that people are probably sleeping on them a bit. Uh, they, I mean, they are the number one seed. They did have a quality first half of the season. And uh, um, I'm just, I'm not entirely certain why Derrick Henry is going to help improve their passing game. I think it's much more important that AJ Brown and, and Julio Jones are healthy for them to succeed in the playoffs. Um, um, but I think in terms of the perception in the betting markets, I think you'll see a move if it <laughs> on uh, kind of, if, if Derek Henry is the one that's healthy. And I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Josh in, in uh, basketball, there's a lot of talk about preparing for the finals in a way specific to the team and that, that you don't do during the season, which is why the playoffs are so different from the regular season. You get many mid games, you kind of have a chance to study is something like that happening in football too? Do you, you think about preparing for the team and that makes the, um, the, the playoffs different from the regular season in ways like kind of related to your, the previous idea. If you got a good run team that you're facing, you might want to shore that up by putting more men in the box. And maybe they should think that I know that you know that you think that we have, and then we should now do passing. I mean, how does that come, come to play in playoffs? That's fascinating. I, I, when the stakes are so high, I mean, we kind of saw this prisoner's dilemma stuff go on with the timeout or not take the timeout this past week um, with the chargers and the Raiders and, 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 uh, and, and this kind of thinking of, you know, how do you change your core philosophy in moments where so much is on the line and, uh, and you're unsure about what your opponent is going to do. And, uh, but I think, I think the best teams, I remember when the Niners, we talked about them earlier, the best teams uh, go into the playoffs or go in against their opponent, treating them as, treating them as nameless, baseless opponents. Like the idea is we have our plan. We're going to execute our plan for successful at executing our plan. Uh, we'll win. I think maybe football and parody have, have kind of changed that outlook a little bit. And I think, you know, all the way back to Sid Gilman matchups have always been important. Um, you know, I think that, you know, if you, if you can take advantage of your opponent's weaknesses, obviously that is, is going to increase your win probability. But hey, hey, Josh, can you elaborate the Sid Gilman reference? I, I'm old, but I'm not that old. So what, what you got there? So his AFL chargers were, were pretty incredible. And he was the guy who actually came up with the idea that you match the depth of your receiver's roots with the number of steps your quarterback takes on his drop. 
So if it's a three-step drop, obviously it's going to be a shorter pass. But he also consulted with some uh, with some professors uh, in at University of California to try and work out the geometry of the field so that the time the ball was in flight was always the same no matter what route. The routes were slightly different, obviously, but wherever he put his receivers on the field, he wanted the ball to be in flight a specific amount of time based on the, uh, the drop back. And, uh, and so matchups were a big part of this as well, and he was one of the first to use um, running backs out of the backfield. Instead of chip blocking and, and hanging out and being a blocking back for even a, a beat, he wanted them out in pattern immediately. And he thought because uh, he, they would be taking advantage of a, of a linebacker. So those matchup ideas. Um, mm-hmm. Just, just a, just a tremendously thoughtful uh, man. He, um, he was going to go into equities trading if, after he lost his job with the Chargers, um, but then got another job in the NFL. And uh, um, anyway, he influenced Bill Walsh, and um, and I think, and I think that type, that type of thinking, um, though, I think is obviously, you know, common in the NFL when, especially in the playoffs. Um, but I think the more interesting thing to me is if the coaches are actually betting on the things that, that will move the needle and not overemphasizing the things that uh, probably won't help them win. And I, I, last night we were listening to the, to the game and um, I was listening to Jimbo Fisher uh, kind of make comments as, as the game was unfolding. And it just seems to me that coaches have a tendency to overreact and overweight what's happening on the field in a moment. And I, I think that adaptability is important, you know, and I think that, you know, but, but overfitting for your opponent, and then getting away from the things that have been historically, you know, pretty useful and, and, and pretty successful uh, and playing into a nine, six game instead of continuing to pass or tr- continue to be aggressive and, you know, making the assumption, no, this is going to be a tight game, the entire game. And then you see what happens in the fourth quarter you know, it gets blown up. Um, I think that can be a, a problem with uh, playoff thinking. So obviously that's a tough, that's a tough balance that you're, optimal decision is going to be some blend of those things. And you're saying you think there might be a tendency, at least among some coaches, to play too much into what's happening in that moment. Hey, give us a quick review on that um, ESPN2 um, telecast with Jimbo Fisher and the entire coaching staff of the Texas A&M Aggies. Nice little recruiting pitch for those guys. Uh, I heard good things about how entertaining that was. What do you think, Josh? I thought it was, it was interesting. I, I guess the dynamic that struck me – uh, was more around the team and how they interacted with one another, the coaches themselves. I, I thought that the commentary was the commentary. We've had that for a few years. Yeah. But he, he seemed to, uh, he seemed to rule that room with a, with an iron fist. There wasn't a lot of, you didn't get the <laughs> sense that these guys were actually empowered to talk and speak up <laughs> and actually, and it wasn't like he was calling on his linebackers coach. Hey, what do you think about this play? Or, or, his, or his D line coach, what do you think about happened there? It wasn't like he was, he was rolling oh, right over these guys constantly. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, so I, 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 thought, I thought that, that the kind of leadership style, uh, I, thought, I found it interesting. But music way. to my ears, Josh, music to my ears. Hey, man, talking about coaching. We're talking about coaching. The, this, this, the other theme I would say, the most interesting theme to me about the season beyond variance was I think analytics is at a new moment. It's like, uh, it's at it's it's gotten enough traction now that the resistance has really taken up arms, and um, man, Staley is a lightning rod, and he was before this, and now, good lord! So, what's your impression of? I mean, I've, we've probably all seen a lot of pieces on the timeout. We have our own opinions, but what do you think about the timeout? And then, more generally, what do you think about this the 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 
flashpoint that Staley has become. I think it's unfortunate. I think, um, you know, now he's being painted as arrogant and, uh, and there's the knives are out. And, you know, I, I saw that uh, Lombardi said, uh, you know, he would, he never worked for an owner that wouldn't have fired him after this season, a coach like Staley, just, just ridiculous takes. And I do think that you nailed it. I think there's a lot of blowback against the idea that these, evidence-based analysis is, is taking hold. And I think there's a lot of folks, old, old school football guys who find that to be a threat. And, uh, uh, and it's unfortunate because I, I think that owners listen to those people. And, um, and I think that they, they overweight that type of opinion. And, and I think that um, the more those type of, uh, you know, I don't know, un, un, go ahead. I, 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 I just, I get, I get really frustrated uh, with, with how unfair some of these critiques of coaches who are embracing analytical thinking uh, are treated in the media. Um, I do think though, that there are pockets that are, that are there to support them. And, uh, and I'm cert- certain that, you know, 538 is one of them. Sometimes <laughs> we sometimes publish some, some pieces that are uh, sort of anti-analytics. Uh, but I know that uh, Mina Kimes is doing a good job in ESPN really kind of uh, trumpeting the horn. And, uh, and there's even some announcers guys like on uh, NFL red zone, Scott Hansen is actually a, a big friend of evidence-based analysis. So I think those, those are lights in, in a pretty dark forest right now. Uh, we're in a moment where I don't think we're going to get another analytics GM this, this cycle. And that's unfortunate. And I don't know how long it's going to take. Um, Cause we're, I think we're going to need a couple. Um, we're going to need a few people who think this way because the first guy who gets it, I wouldn't want to put uh, all my eggs in that guy's basket. There's a lot of variance in the NFL. Right. If they're, if they're <laughs> unsuccessful, um, and, and I guess I, I should, I should count Andrew Barry as an analytics GM. I just, I don't know if I can, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, long story short, to answer your question, it, it has been a, a tough year for uh, analytics and, uh, and they've really taken a beating and people who, who use them are taking a beating in the, in the media. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned Barry, if we can't count the Browns yet as a stalwart in that battle, then we're in the battle hasn't advanced very far. Um, because they're certainly in some respects allocated more resources than anybody else has, but the, you need some, you need some wins, you know, I mean, th- imagine the difference between Staley making the playoffs and the chargers making the playoffs and the chargers not making the playoffs. I mean, this is the probably the, I haven't seen the stats, but probably the most aggressive fourth down goer in the league this year, probably wanting some games that way. No one pays attention to those. They might've lost a game or two that way, but by things breaking the wrong way, he makes the playoffs. It's a different story. He misses the playoff. And so these narratives and the chance you said like variance goes against you. You need one of these guys who's super aggressive to have it pay off in a way that is irrefutable and is kind of old school currency. You need the old school currency to come in on the side of one of these guys to make a difference. But, but Josh, do we, how much do we care? And this is, I mean, and how much, how frustrated should you and I really be about this? And I think this is a kind of an interesting question because I've had this discussion with some of the guys in the league and they're like, well, <laughs> I've been fighting this battle for a few years. I'm getting tired of it. Uh, because as long as there are, as much resistance as there is, then the edges are still going to be there. If everybody's playing that way, then one of the most important edges in the game goes away. It's a free edge right now. So how much I, I watch you talk about this. I'm like, Oh man, Josh is sad. Damn. This is hard for Josh. I'm like, well, sometimes I feel the same way, but I'm not sure that I should. I mean, the, the edges remain that, that that is, that is absolutely true. And we're still picking up dollars uh, right off the ground and that's great. But 
at the end of the day, we still need these guys to get a chance. And that means that we need to convince ownership that this is the right way to run a team and that you need to give it a shot. Right now, there's no path for these guys who are coming up through the analytical ranks within these nascent programs to, to, to get themselves a shot. Um, the, the old paths are just well-worn and, and the kingmakers are the kingmakers. And it's, and it's just a tough, it's a tough road to hoe for those guys. And so I feel for them and I want to see them get more chances. As, as we mentioned, we, we need to get a couple in there. Um, we can't, it can't just all be Andrew Barry or whomever. And, um, and so for that reason, I get frustrated, but I am after this season, I've, I've, I've promised myself I'm there. I'm not going to engage in any more fourth down analysis. I I'm done with it. Um, I think, <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who've been in, you've been in the analytics space a lot longer than me, like Andrew Schatz and the rest who, who've kind of given up as well. Um, I think Burke doesn't talk about it as much as he used to. Uh, I think you just get tired and I don't want to spend the mental energy just engaging with some really bad, bad faith arguments um, about, about this analysis anymore. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was a, a little bit what my point was going to be. I feel like we overly focus on, I mean, it makes sense why we focus on these kind of in-game strategies because it's ones that, you know, we can have a fourth down bot, do a quick calculation. It's kind of, but we overly focus on kind of the in-game things like fourth downs or two-point conversions when presumably the actual real role or the main role of analytics is more on like player development, player kind of evaluation a lot of stuff kind of presumably going on behind the scenes and do you feel like people like you know like i I can imagine organizations you know i i hope organizations aren't like oh we don't need you know analytics are bad because i don't want to be a team that goes forward on fourth you know on fourth down from their 018 because that's really such a small part of what analytics really kind of would bring to an organization do you kind of feel like we you know, the whole industry is sort of overly focused on presenting as our kind of public version of analytics, these kind of in-game decisions like fourth downs. Yeah, as a marketing decision, it's probably a poor one, but it's it's in the moment. It's kind of, a, it's, it, it's a way that analytics can kind of insert itself into the conversation during a game, whereas all the rest of it is kind of off-season stuff uh, or preparation. And, uh, and so I, I understand why it happened and I understand why it continues to happen. Um, but I agree with you that it's probably, in terms of a branding exercise, probably not the best way to go about things. You know, they really are different sides of the house in in most of those franchises. You've got the coaching side with the in-game stuff, and you've got the personnel side with the scouting stuff. Uh, and in that way, they they could be pretty independent. But I think in the ideal organization, the, the same culture is reinforced. And the, and the culture matters and the voice given to the analyst on one side affects the influence the analyst has on the other side. I, I, I suspect this is the way it works in most places. So I agree that it gets too much attention and, and it is pretty separate, but in terms of the organization and the culture of the place, uh, they're connected. Um, and you'd like to see an owner and a GM who supports both, both the in-game stuff and the, and the, and the personnel side philosophically, and you build a culture around that. And it's really, really hard to do. It's one of the reasons it, it works when it's on both sides of the house, because it's so hard unless you do that, unless everyone's on the same page, coaches and scouts, and not just the analysts, but the old school scouts. It's really, really hard. Um, Eric was going to try to jump in. Yeah, I was just going to ask you how much um, it relates to Shane's question about like the, uh, the Chargers, because always going forward on fourth down. How much should uh, – coaches actually take a mixed equilibrium strategy and not always go for it. Because if you know they're always, it relates to 
uh, Adi's point about Princess Bride and the, you know, if I know that you know, well, if you always know that they're going to go for it, fourth and two from their own 18, then that has an implication for what they're going to do on third down. And so maybe the criticism of the Chargers coach isn't so much that he goes for it on fourth down, is that he always does it and becomes predictable in a certain way. Have you guys thought at all about introducing randomness into strategy, which is shown to be a dominant thing to do? Yeah, Josh, but just speaking of that, why don't they punt on third downs to more? I mean, come on. Everyone's always running plays on third down. That's predictable as hell. Jeez. More well, quick kick. More, I, I would call I, – I do think quick, quick kicks are underused. Uh, I, I, no, it's a great point. I, I think that at some, at some point you do lose your edge, right? You, 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 whatever, whatever you're gaining from going forward on fourth down, you lose being predictable. Uh, but, you know, the trick, obviously, the sticky wicket is knowing when you've, you've crossed that line, when the inflection point is, has been reached. And I, I don't know, I don't know that even, even, uh, even Staley has reached that point. Um, like if you looked at this past game, they had seven moments. I don't know if they were all fourth downs, but they were, Moments where their season could have ended, and they went seven for seven, and uh, and and many of them were fourth and long. Many of them were like fourth. One was fourth and twenty-two. Um, well, that seems to be the problem. They can only get the fourth down if it's like fourth and ten. That's interesting too. So, at least uh, in terms of execution, that's certainly an empirical observation from that game. Obviously, that and, can't and, actually be the case, but you know, the well, that might be a function. Was, it might be a function of the defense, right? So they don't expect you to do it. And so they play it soft or they play off or um, they play a, a weak zone or whatever it might be that makes success actually uh, paradoxically more likely on those long fourth, fourth and long. So I, I, I don't, I guess I, I agree with the principle of it. Like, yes, introduce randomness. Yes. When you're bluffing, you should, you know, I mean, or when you're playing poker, you should bluff maybe, you know, eight, 10% of the time um, that's optimal, but, but I don't know that we're going for it on fourth down enough yet for for bluffing to actually move the needle in terms of uh, win probability. Josh, one of the most interesting personnel questions floating around the NFL right now is whether the what are the Browns going to do with Mayfield? And I, pr- probably more interesting before he um, has gone into surgery and now and now they probably have kind of an excuse to not re-up him. Maybe that means they can get this next season without too much controversy. But in general, how are you thinking about his our assessment of him. Um, how much have we learned in the last three years? What's the current projection? And in general, how confident do you feel in our ability to learn about quarterbacks in the first few years in the league these days? We've got, we've got this question you know, all over the league, basically. Yeah, I think no one knows anything about quarterbacks. I thought I might know something about quarterbacks for a few years, and I was suitably chastened. And, and I don't think that also, so tell us about the chastening. So th- this is the downside of doing running data, right? You learned that you don't know as much as you think you do. Yeah, I thought I thought that CPOE uh, from the college to to the pros would be uh, quite a big quite a big edge. I thought that we would be able to weed. Real, real out. quickly, C, just remind everyone CPOE. Sure. So that's completion percentage over expected when adjusted for things like um, conference opponent, uh, depth of target, um, hashes. You know where on the field the location of the pass. These kind of things. Given the data we have in in in, in college, it isn't as robust uh, or as detailed as what what we have with uh, NFL data now. But um, it it is a good predictor of future success. Different metrics, things like EPA per play or yards per attempt, over the first three or four years of a quarterback's career in the NFL. Um, but it's, cent- it's centered around their passing ability, so it 
discounts their ability to run, which is a big edge. And so it's got a blind spot there. And then on top of that, it has failed miserably on guys like Josh Allen and to a lesser extent, Justin Herbert. And those guys are quite good. <laughs> and, uh, and so, <laughs> you know, so I think, I think you, you need to have a, uh, a broader, a broader frame of reference. There's the problem though, uh, talking with people in the league, the problem though, is that even when you aggregate all of the good scouting information, you still don't get a good picture of who's a good quarterback. So even if you have data, I don't have access to, it doesn't appear to be the case that, um, you know, even a, an intelligent way of aggregating scouting information is going to get you where you need to go. So quarterbacks, we don't know anything about them. We still don't. Um, and, and, and so because of that, my critique of the Browns has been since day one, if you, if you aren't pretty reasonably certain you have a franchise quarterback, you don't got one. So you better keep drafting. And they didn't, or at least making more plans, you know, plan B, plan C, and they just simply didn't do it. And now they're saying, well, we're in this tough situation now. What, what do we do? You know, of course we have to make these decisions. These are the rational decisions given the situation I'm in, we're in currently. And I said, well, that's fine. I mean, that's well and good, but you don't need to, you didn't need to be in that situation. So we're framing the question in the wrong way. And, uh, and, and so I, I'm a little, I'm a little frustrated with how they've, they've treated this Baker Mayfield situation. It appears um, they're going to hang on to him for this extra year and they're making noises. Uh, Barry came out and said that, you know, he's going to be our quarterback next year. We have a lot of faith. He's going to rebound. I don't know why you would have that much confidence in Baker at this point. And, uh, and I think, uh, I think what it speaks to is as an organization, I think uh, the Browns are probably the smartest team in the league at finding a path through a forest. Once their degrees of freedom have been limited when, once, once, you know, once a certain amount of decisions have been made for them, by outside circumstances, they're really good at plotting a path through a tough, a tough forest, but they're very bad at being proactive. And, and I think to be a winning team, you need to, you need to, to really a winning organization. How's that? Um, you, you really need to be a bit more proactive than they've been. What's an example of productivity in the NFL that you've observed and admired? Like, is there an organization or a particular move? I really liked that while the Eagles had wins, they drafted Hertz. I liked that the Green Bay Packers drafted a quarterback probably a little too late. They, they didn't draft an offensive player in the first round for God, how many years, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think, I think those type of moves where teams have, Oh, and uh, what happened with Kyler Murray after they had Josh Rosen in Arizona, I think those are just great examples of teams that were making proactive big bets at the important position in football in ways that actually can create, hostility in the media, you know, it can, can, can put your job on the line if your owner isn't completely bought in. And, and, uh, and so I respect those moves. Mm-hmm. Suppose you were the GM of the Jaguars and you say, look, we got the number one pick. We're not going to take a quarterback again at one because there's no one that anyone thinks is a number one, but I haven't seen anything that suggests that Trevor Lawrence is a guaranteed franchise quarterback. If you're the Jaguars, would you trade back and maybe take the first quarterback who might be mid first round? Why not throw in some competition there as well? I agree. I agree. I mean, I, there, there are a lot of people who are imbuing within Lawrence a lot of hope that I don't know is warranted right now. I mean, he, he went, what do you do, five, six, seven weeks without throwing a touchdown or maybe one touchdown? I mean, that's hard to do in the NFL as a starting quarterback. I mean, we saw a lot of backups this year have success in raw stats. 
Um, and Lawrence wasn't even getting that. Now he was in a terrible situation and all the rest, and we have to discount things. But no, I don't think you should have a tremendous amount of confidence that he is the guy for the future, and certainly not so much that you wouldn't uh, draft another guy to, to maybe push him a little bit. Yeah, his best game was actually against the Colts in Week 18. That looked at he, if he's hey, that Trevor hey. Lawrence, we'll take that game. That's he's, he need to grow a little bit. Give him a chance. He's a kid. Come on, man. So, Josh, we're gonna have to let you go. But this conversation reminds me of um, one of your few flaws. You know, we're crazy about you personally, professionally, but you do have these big flaws. Like you don't like college football very much, for example, and you hate on the NFL draft. Why do you hate the NFL draft? And why do you have to complain about it all spring? You're already starting. You're pre-complaining about the NFL draft. We're not even done with the season yet. I don't hate the draft. I love the draft. It's the most fun part of the offseason. But I hate the the clips and the overweighting of practice drills and like, oh, look, he threw with such great anticipation on this route. He's practiced 500 times today. Like uh, all of that stuff is absolute nonsense. It, it, it is meaningless. I give it no weight and it just fills my timeline on Twitter and, and, and it makes me, makes me annoyed, but uh, I love the draft. I love the draft game. I don't, I don't like college football for a host of reasons we've already discussed. Um, if they paid the players and if there wasn't this exhibition season with the bowl games, I might, I might like college a lot more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a long-term project of mine. We'll get you there. We'll get you there. But hey, didn't you go to like the Army Navy game or something? Did you enjoy the pageantry of it? The pageantry of college football, Josh? No, I didn't make it. My my sister oh. un- unfortunately is sick, and uh, I couldn't okay. risk it. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna drag you to another one one of these days. All right, that's Josh Hermsmeyer. You can follow him in many places. His work up on five thirty eight. He's a research writer. He's a writer and analyst on the football side of things there. But also Twitter at Frisco Josh. You can always follow him, catch up on what he's up to uh, up there at Frisco Josh. Josh, always a pleasure. Thanks for making the time, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. That has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. From the whole crew here, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. For the boss man, Matty Das. thanks for the work, Matt. For the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Dion, appreciate you. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, Enjoy your sports.